I'm with uh, Stanley Kellerman to talk about formative uh, psychology. Hi, Stanley. Hi. So maybe a good way to start would be to uh, tell us about how you arrived, starting from emotional anatomy, to formative psychology. Oh, you know, actually, in the, in the uh, early chapters of uh, emotional anatomy, there was embedded the formative concept, because that actually was, uh, in The Body Speaks Its Mind, mm -hmm. uh, my book, The Body Speaks Its Mind, it was a... Um, a whole chapter on the formative process. So, Stanley... Emotional anatomy was laying the foundation for how the body grows into the shape that it is that we use as a, um, a diagnostic category or as a way to appreciate what it is that we're working with. So, the seed was there about uh, what formative psychology is and why it's grounded in the life of the body. So that, that was that uh, background for it. Uh, what I understood, that is, when I wrote Emotional Anatomy, was that the central truth of human life is that we're bodied and that having a body uh, has different shapes over time. You know, as a child, an adolescent, an adult, an older adult. And that these shape changes are uh, sort of, I mean, not sort of, they are built in. There are inheritance. And that I saw that actually shape, and now I mean body organization, uh, is our inheritance and that it's the manifest principle of all animate existence. That is, as far as we know, the living and the living environment is driven by anatomical form. So I want to just stop you for a minute here because there's a lot in, uh, in what you say and uh, some of the people who listen to this are intimately familiar with it and some are much less so or not aware of it. Um, so I want to just uh, bring in what I'm hearing you say is that um, uh, we, we go through different shapes and these shapes are not just uh, uh, shape as we use the word in everyday language but shapes as principle of organization. Correct. That these, these are organized forms of existing. And they're anatomical in nature, whether that anatomy is cellular or molecular. And uh, one of the, the things, uh, the, the statements I think you sometimes make is anatomy is behavior. So how does this relate to um, uh, transformative psychology? Well, if, once you realize uh, that when you see any anatomical form, when you see, say, a cell, and you look at the cell as a, inside a microscope with a structure, you see that it's doing something. It's behaving. And if you excise, say, the nucleus or other things, that the cell behaves differently. So you, you get the idea on that uh, small level, microscopic level, that anatomy is in fact not pictures in a book, but a, a living behavior mm. that is doing something. And you could say that it ex, it's expanding and contracting. 
You could say that it's moving liquids. You could say that it's making chemical exchanges. You could say that it's making cellular relationships, one cell to another, and so forth. But it is behavior. So then you, you, you recognize that a body shape is, uh, is already a behavior. Mm. Standing upright is a behavior. And then you realize that anatomical behavior, anatomical organization is a behavior. And as a behavior, it's an experience. And that as anatomical change happens, so does behavior and so does experience and so does meaning and value. Okay, so there's a very, uh, you know, that uh, the focus on the body uh, is really uh, where you see that um, uh, the body reflects experience and uh, reflects value, and uh, and that's that's the uh, that's the interface. That's where everything comes to to comes into place. What, but if you say that anatomy is behavior, and anatomy and behavior generates experience, so that experience is anatomically based. Then uh, you you are of course embedded in that statement is that there's sensation, there's feeling, and there's primitive and sophisticated cognition as well as expression. So you already have a subjectivity that's inherited in that statement. Mm-hmm. It's not exactly that you're talking about a robot or a silicon chip that the behavior is self-regulating. It knows itself about what it does and how it does it and what its consequences are. Now, this, uh, this has an enormous practical uh, clinical application search. Yes, so that's great. Do you want to maybe uh, talk a little bit about the practical side of it? Well, the, the, the practical side is... is that when you begin to work physically with a person, whatever your methodology is now, you are engaging it immediately anatomically, a contraction, a spasticity, or a porosity, or a lack of tonus. You are addressing that either by touch, by exercise, or whatever, and that the minute you impact an anatomical organization of body behavior on that level, you are altering it. And in altering it, you are creating new experiences and new behaviors, so you, even though they're short-lived. So what also you're saying is that uh, as you're interacting, uh, you may not be having a, quote, body interaction. You may be talking, but you're conscious that no matter what, what the interaction is going to have a body consequence. You know, I have a sort of, I have to say, yes, I agree with that. But I, I just wanted to say, just as a sense of fun, the most used muscle in the body, people don't understand, is the larynx. <laughs> and so speaking is a muscular act. Yeah. Right, it includes the diaphragm and the larynx. So, in other in other words, um, you know, uh, you cannot escape the body even if you wanted to. That's right. So, and when you begin to think about um, the concept of mirror um, uh, mirror neurons, mm-hmm. you realize that talking is a form of muscular gestures making particular sounds that other people are muscularly and behaviorally resonating with. So yeah. that 
even in talking back and forth, you are invoking basic body orientations between people. So it's, 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 you, you, you see how deep that you yes. can speaking is not anatomically based. Yes. Have consequences. So, so uh, in a way, uh, when we're, we started this uh, train of thought with the idea of what, it, what, how does this apply in practice, and the first thing is to realize that no matter what you're doing, uh, even if you're just doing talk, uh, you are already in the body. That's exactly right. So, how else, you know, how else, what other consequences does this have for clinical practice? Well, in the, well, what you realize, six of the people will tell you that they're panicked that they have panic attacks. They will tell you that uh, uh, they feel depressed. Or they will tell you that they don't really know how to reach out. Or so forth. You realize that this is a behavior. So you are searching, looking at how a person uses themselves behaviorally. Like you see, they may have a lot of uh, holding in, stiffening in the upper body or in the throat, or wherever, you, you see that segmentally. Or, and, and then you realize what you are going to ask somebody to reach out, to try and reach out to see what the experience of reaching out is. So I want to just stop you a little bit just to make sure that um, time to digest this for people who listen to it. What I'm hearing you say is first you pay attention to the shape, and so that's the embodiment of these uh, uh, feelings, affect, or behavior. And uh, then you're asking people to do something a little different. You say in this case reaching out. I may ask them to do that, but more likely I would ask them to intensify the posture that they have. So let's say you see that they're squeezing their arms or holding their arms uh, limp. I would say, because this is the basis of my approach, Yes. use voluntary muscular effort to intensify the pattern that you are presently in, mm-hmm. how you inhibit it yourself or how you're holding yourself. And as you ask the person to uh, voluntarily intensify this pattern, do you describe the pattern to people or uh, just uh, to help them realize what's happening or let them feel it first? Or I might say, uh, how are you stopping yourself reaching out? Mm. I might say, okay, you're, tell me, you're, you're depressed. Would you show me the physicality as you imagine it of your own depressiveness? Like, uh, are you slouching or are you constricting yourself? So that they try to note something about their own way of using their body. And when you ask them to voluntarily intensify that, let's do it more. Yes. You are begin by changing the anatomy. You're vivifying the anatomy. You're giving that body shape more body, so to speak, or more muscular tone or so. And they will begin to tell you how they experience what it is they're doing. The next step would be to ask them to use less effort 
okay, you're squeezing, let's say, at 50%. So let's squeeze a little less voluntarily. Do what might say 30%. You're changing the shape. And then they will tell you that they have other experiences. Okay, so first um, you ask them to, um, to change uh, the movement Correct. and then uh, to vary the intensity with which they're doing it so that they notice how different the experience is in the first and the second case. Right. So that, but both are anatomically both are anatomical ships and you, they get to see that how they in fact use themselves muscularly shifts the experience and that becomes like a revelation of wait a minute I can, I can influence myself and then you get, they get an idea that they're not totally a victim to their own responses and that they see that a shifting of the intensity of an activity, an anatomical behavior, an expression, alters how they feel themselves yeah. and how they think about what they do. So that's where the, uh, there's a very important role uh, in this approach to the voluntary movement, which is uh, how a person can come to experience then their sense of self. So we can make two statements about that. That is a true sentence. That A, that they begin to see that with some voluntary muscular cortical effort, they can influence subcortical structures of behavior or learned habituated behavior like don't touch that, don't reach out, and so forth and that they recognize, A, that an inherited reflex pattern is influenceable by voluntary muscular cortical effort, that they have feeling that they can manage by changing their anatomical shape. And what they begin to learn about this is the relationship, and this is a sort of a technical statement, they learn the relationship between voluntary cortical muscular effort and involuntary yes. muscular and emotional expressions and how there's a cooperative organization of these two different organs or organ systems in individuating a piece of behavior. Mm. not going to be so angry, I'm going to be less angry. I'm going to be I form annoyance rather than rage. I can differentiate the rage pattern, the inherited rage pattern, and make it into annoyance or anger so that they see that with voluntary effort that they can differentiate an inherited anatomical form. And then they begin to learn what self-regulation means about their own shape, their own anatomical, emotional behavior, yeah. and that they have some influence, if not over another person, over themselves. So in, in lots of ways, self-regulation is a central concept because it's uh, first introducing people to the possibility of self-regulation and then uh, the, the practice of it. That's exactly right.
And what you realize, not what I have realized, is that the cortex is fundamentally an organ of self-regulation. Even though it can plan a future, that's a form of self-regulation. So that what you realize is that self-regulation has many levels. Some of them are autonomous and biochemical and so forth. And some of them are uh, neural, muscular, on a reflex level. And on a higher level, they begin to develop. And the development now is really the key. That cortical effort and muscular effort on a voluntary level is a developed function. It develops like learning to speak over time. And that you, this is a learned function. It's not an intact function that all of a sudden appears like Athena out of Zeus's head. Yes, so that's hence the uh, concept that uh, the name of um, uh, formative psychology. Right. Well, uh, this has enormous clinical impact because that doesn't that means that a person coming to your office with a behavioral uh, difficulty or what they want to call a psychological difficulty is now addressing themselves as learning to manage or regulate the state that they find themselves in. This is an educational growth process, an anatomical educational growth process that's using voluntary muscular effort to influence involuntary muscular effort. So in doing that, we shift a little bit from the paradigm of uh, pathology to go into something about uh, education, re-education, training, strengthening, improving, growing. That's right. You, you, you recognize that the organism really is in trouble because it does not know how to or has never been exposed directly to the way that they could help develop a means by regulating their instinctive behavior. It doesn't do away, I mean, people, there is a pathology. I'm not saying there's no pathology, mm -hmm. but I'm saying that a way to address a, a pathological situation is to try and reinstitute that is developed enough self-regulation, and that means muscular, voluntary muscular striated and cortical interactions to alter anatomy, which is to alter experience and behavior and the way you use expressions, whether at work or in lovemaking, and that this is the central concept. Yeah. So you use this concept in the case of, say, somebody who has had a past trauma, but I think you also use it in the case of uh, uh, just a, a practice to help people grow and become more of who they could be. Right. Well, somebody who's had a past trauma, you know, you can ask the question of, well, okay, what happened to you that you were helpless? Mm -hmm. And then how would you now organize and manage disassembling your helplessness and organizing a more active, less helpless state? Which is another kind of questioning and interacting with somebody. Yes. And uh, how you can address the helpless pattern by disassembling its muscular cortical component. But you could also ask the, and I do, uh, the traumatized person, 
okay, you work like I had this chap who works in a prison, he's uh, a prison psychologist, who was knocked out. And I asked him, okay, tell me what did you form or what did you learn about being knocked out and waking up? And that I, I didn't ask him how he felt being hurt and unconscious. Only I asked him, well, okay, what was the process of bringing yourself back to being alert? And he made an enormous discovery. He said, well, I, I had this vision of uh, like a dream that I, a woman was seducing me and that I heard these people's voices saying, wake up, so-and-so, wake up. And that uh, I didn't know which way to go, so I went with the voice telling me to wake up. And I pointed out to him that actually that he was already aroused. There was desire and that the, the desire woke you up and how are you going to use that? Hmm. He said, you know, I've always had difficulty dealing with my arousal. And I see now that I can manage my arousal if I do this and this muscular activity. Yes. You see, the line of questioning about what's forming in a trauma is an important question in helping a person recognize their own formative process and trying to give a situation some sort of personal uh, influence that you can influence it. So, you know, in a way, just uh, by the, the, the question itself, you're introducing the person to their sense of agency, their sense of involvement in it, as opposed to the uh, it's happening in a passive way. That's right. That's really important, and it, it's based on the, the premise that even helplessness is an attempt for the organism to sustain a form of existence, and that it may be inappropriate at a particular time, or it has to be lessened in its intensity, because helplessness is a statement, please help me from the outside. Mm. So it's really trying to elicit social form. Somebody lends you, okay, wake up, you know? Yeah. And it, it really brings back the organizing principle into doing body psychotherapy or working with the body because it's all bodily oriented. It's anatomical shape changing form. So in a way there is a relationship as uh, you know you talk a lot about organizing, disorganizing but that's also you know how could you not be the case uh, when we're talking about organisms. That's right. Because that, uh, this is what people want to know that there's a disorganizing phase that is disassembling what is no longer necessary in terms of intensity and then there's an organizing phase which brings things together and makes new coalitions and that how does a person able to influence their own muscular body postural expressions and stances to see that what they've done was an attempt to sustain themselves over time and how to learn from it in different situations that were from the past. Yeah. So I think that the future of uh, body psychotherapy, as I've understood it, is really the introduction of a voluntary muscular and cortical effort in managing how we are bodily in the world and how we bodily experience ourselves. 
to build a personalized entity, anatomical entity in us themselves that we call self. Yeah. So that the constant act of um, uh, creating and recreating how we form our shapes yes. at different times in our lives. Yes. And that generates emotional feeling and cognitive organizations within ourselves. You know, we can we could say that as we learn to use ourselves with voluntary effort, we are building a cortical synaptic network of experiences that become memories which we then call our personal self. Which is a consequence of the, that the underlying task is the constant forming ourselves and organizing and changing and that the, uh, these, um, say the emotional part and this, the, the, the synaptic connections are a result of this process. Yes. And this, this makes, this makes our work enormously important where, uh, from, uh, we're way ahead of the psychological game in the tools that we have in our hand and in all the experiences we've had going back to Grodek in trying to understand the life of the body and its ability to generate feeling and experience and increase the pleasures and satisfactions of existence. So, you know, when you have, a, you, you develop this approach, it's, it's based on a sense of what is a human being. How would you address this question? I think that uh, a human being is a, an animal organizing process that changes its shape over time. And as, I don't know about other species, but the human being certainly is capable of personalizing its inherited body to create a personalized entity. It is capable of making, say, impersonal processes like sexuality and uh, nurturing, raising children, personal experiences that help, A, form a person, form a family, form a society, and enter into a process of continual differentiating and inventing behaviors that change the nature of human existence. So I want to, to just, uh, it's a very rich and very, um, uh, you know, definition that's full of layers of meaning. So I just want to just uh, take a couple of them. Uh, one is you start by uh, the, the definition by saying that uh, a human being is a process. And then uh, you uh, see other things that it does is the way of interacting with other processes, including creating processes that influence uh, the, uh, our own life. Correct. So that life is a formative process. Is a formative process. So, in other words, there is something uh, that is uh, in in the the practice of what you uh, you describe uh, is a sense not just of a connection with the body, but a sense of connecting with something that is much larger, a larger process uh, of which the body is part. Well, I would say to you this way: a what I'm describing is clearly an evolutionary process and that I think that we have to align ourselves with uh, evolutionary theory from a biological and a psychological point of view. We're part of an evolutionary process and that I would then say that all life, all living is part of the 
I read, I know about things. I can't talk about the universe because I'm not a physicist, but certainly I know that the biosphere is changing and the surface of the earth and the interior of the earth have changed over time. So this is a, I'm going to say the human being is a sub-organization of a bigger animate process which it's embedded in. Otherwise it's embedded in the biosphere. Yes. And that there's a relationship between the large organizing process biosphere and its sub-organizations human beings and other animate forms, and that relationship seems to be similar to the body and its cortex, in which experience and novel events generate changes that can be preserved and differentiated and transmitted to others as a way of changing its own environment and its external environment. And that seems to be the story of all living. That is the yeah. narrative of every human being, forming a personal world in an impersonal world. Yes. And uh, in that sense of um, uh, being a process contained in all of these other processes and being in the middle of them, and at the same time, um, that very uh, simple, immediate sense of uh, experience. Yes, I would say that. But that it's highly influenceable by voluntary muscular effort. So that the uh, voluntary muscular effort is in fact the moment of truth where uh, you have the capacity of really directly experiencing that you are because you do voluntary movement in effect. You are creating that. You are, you are absolutely creating the sense of I am part of this process. I, I, I would say to you that Freud may have said that dreams are the royal road to the unconscious. But I'm willing to say more so that the emergence of cortical voluntary muscular effort is in fact the edge of evolution as far as the human being is concerned and has led him into areas of self-regulation which have become reorganizing about how animal life is lived, at least in this species. That is the creation of tools, methods of travel, changing our environment, which we are experts at as human beings, has now, I think, changed or beginning to change in how the human being alters their own anatomical processes in order to adapt to changing situations that it has created. So in a word, when, uh, as, we, as we practice um, this um, voluntary movement, we're not just addressing a problem, we're not just growing, but we're actually in the middle of doing what we very deeply are, uh, what is our essence to be, what is, is, is who we are. To be an organizing form of the process, yes. Yeah. And so that you can see that how we address a person's bodily stances as a form that has been habituated and practiced and become part of ourselves, that has rules of organization that can be influenced, to be disassembled and reassembled, whether 
calculations or episodes of impulsiveness that one can help disassemble patterns of behavior that is anatomical forms, change them temporarily, and learn how to give those forms through a practice of using muscular effort duration over time so they themselves become memories of our efforts and mm -hmm. of our new experiences which change how we are in the world. Yeah. That's the clinical application. It's almost like teaching a depressive person what it is feels like to be less depressed and how to use the less depressive state to form another way of expressing yourself. So, Stanley, would you like to actually repeat that? So it seems like a very meaningful, very spicy way of describing, with the example of a depressive person, of describing what the process is in general. Uh, a depressive person is a, has, what I pointed out in my books, a particular organizational structure that you can, that he is identified with as generating the depressive state, whether it's collapsed chest that inhibits oxygenation or whatever, and that as he learns to influence his body shape that's generating the sensations of depression and all the behavior and experiences, even for a brief period of time, of being less depressed, more animated, having more sensations, as he learns to repeat this process, he is creating two things, a diminution of his complaining anatomical state and B, learning to form another way of existing over time that becomes a memory of the actions that he's taken and its consequences of feeling undepressed that forms another lifestyle or another relationship over time and becomes habituated behavior. Otherwise, he learns how to form being undepressed and what it is to form behavior and relationships that don't have depression as its base. Okay. Learning another way to live. Yes. Not restoring something, but forming something. Forming something, yes. Yeah. And disorganizing the old form and organizing a new form. Correct. So as we're coming to the end, Stanley, I wanted to ask you if there is a message you would want to uh, leave us with. I think the, the basic message could be to remember anatomy, the body, the soma, is a behavior. And a behavior as a structure generates experience. And that if you alter the body shape, you are altering anatomy, you are altering behavior, you are altering experience. And this feedback mechanism between the shape that was and the shape that you've just altered begins to reorganize and form another person, a more differentiated person in the world. And if we keep that in mind, we'll recognize that we're helping people shape their lives. Thanks a lot, Stanley. My pleasure.
This recording is part of the Somatic Mindfulness and Relational Psychotherapy podcast. See the website relationalimplicit.com.